Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is grieving as a meaning-making process, and our guest is Dr. Robert A. Niemeyer. Dr. Robert Niemeyer is Professor and Director of Psychotherapy Research in the Department of Psychology, University of Memphis, where he also maintains an active clinical practice. Bob has published 20 books, including Meaning Reconstruction and the Experience of Loss, and serves as editor of the journal Death Studies. The author of over 300 articles and book chapters and a frequent workshop presenter, he is currently working to advance a more adequate theory of grieving as a meaning-making process. Bob served as president of the Association for Death Education and Counseling and chair of the International Work Group for Death, Dying, and Bereavement. In recognition of his scholarly contributions, he has been granted the Eminent Faculty Award by the University of Memphis and made a fellow of the American Psychological Association. Welcome to the show, Bob. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for welcoming me to your family. Uh, it's wonderful to have you on the show, and I wondered if you could tell our audience a little bit about how you got into this field of grief and loss. Well, of course, that's a question, Gloria, that could be answered at many levels, and mm-hmm. I suppose the, the most uh, obvious level is in some sense that as a practicing therapist as well as a therapist trainer and an educator and writer and so on, um, I, I contact in many of those settings, and most particularly in the clinical setting, people whose lives are touched by loss in many ways and often profoundly. Uh, in some sense, I suppose all of us are on the same level playing field about grief and loss. And so I, I would be um, contacting and talking with people every week who had experienced losses in their lives, sometimes of children, of parents, of siblings, of spouses, of friends, and so on. And these losses would, of course, touch something in my own heart as well. And as I recognized, I think, the continuity of my losses with theirs, it it led me to realize that my interest in this field was much more than simply an academic or professional one. It referred back to losses in my own life, and maybe especially the loss of my father, who took his own life about a week before my 12th birthday. Mm. Wow. That's tough. So I, I think the attempt to make sense of loss in this way is something that certainly became uh, painfully evident to me at a very early age, and along with the whole family affected by this same uh, loss, I worked for a number of years, I suppose, in the ways I could as a young person uh, to, to integrate this, to somehow weave it into the story of my life in a constructive way. Now, uh, what year would that be? Because uh, there really hasn't been a lot on grief and loss to help people. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. That would have been when I was about 11, so we're talking in the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there really wasn't much out there, was there? No, there was very little. I remember um, you mentioned that uh, the w- good work that you're doing in this uh, kind of Catholic parish where the five girls were killed this summer and in the automobile accident, and I remember that we ourselves uh, participated in a Catholic parish uh, during my childhood, and we went to an alternative parish for the first time in the wake of my dad's death mm. because uh, the the uh, priest was giving a sermon on suicide. Mm-hmm. And I think it spoke to my mother's just pressing need to somehow wrap her heart and mind around this experience to draw on 
something of a familiar spiritual tradition uh, that would help her uh, make sense of this tragic loss. And I think that it, it was not sufficient. She obviously needed more, and for much of the rest of her life, she really struggled with the deep and complicated grief that ensued this this kind of traumatic uh, bereavement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, friends and uh, people that listen to the show, and we have shows on suicide, and it is a very difficult loss, very, very difficult loss for people to comprehend and make sense of yes. uh, how this can happen. Yeah. We find that reflected even in our research, but as we, we look at what people tell us, what they teach us about the losses they've sustained in the last couple of years, uh, we find that you know, we studied the experience of thousands of people, literally, and so we have many hundreds who have experienced the loss of loved ones through suicide, through fatal accident, like the one that took the lives of these five girls, mm-hmm. and also reflecting the violence of our culture through homicide. And we find that all of these griefs are, are marked by a very profound quest for meaning that often yields no sustainable answers, and that that inability to somehow make sense of the loss in spiritual, psychological, philosophical, practical terms um, explains almost all of the complicated and anguished grief symptomatology that these people may feel years later. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I want to talk with you on the show. For our audience out there, I'd like to talk a little bit about what normal, quote, normal grief is and what complicated grief is and how our folks out there who are newly bereaved would know if they needed to get help or support or if they're just going through uh, you know, the throes of uh, what could be thought of as a normal grief. Sure. That's an excellent question. And in some way, the answer would be that they can't know that for sure. Mm-hmm. Especially early on, right? Exactly, exactly. Because it really is premature and in some sense arrogant to try to assess any grief response as uh, complicated, as prolonged uh, in those early weeks and months of loss that The research is pretty clear that you can't really make that call with any confidence until at least six months or a year have passed. And if at that point you see that your sleep patterns are unraveling, you're unable to function in basic roles within the family, within the community, within uh, one's place of employment, Um, if you find that you are preoccupied with a kind of rumination, this endless thinking Mm -hmm. about the loss. uh, Which is normal in the first year even. It is, but to the extent that it becomes preoccupying, disorganizing, erodes the quality of other relationships, um, is accompanied by a sense of loss of purpose and direction in life, perhaps accompanied by a kind of burgeoning anger or bitterness, a feeling of withdrawing from relationships in order not to sustain further losses. With these kinds of uh, responses, then even by six months or a year, particularly if the direction of movement is in, a, is in the negative direction, then there can be reason to, to seek some kind of counseling or therapy. So, Bob, you're saying if it's debilitating and absolutely cripples your life, basically, and you're not able to function in any place. Well, certainly that's the clearest sign, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And okay. then there are less clear signs, as when a person just feels that, gosh, the quality of my marriage is really suffering here, mm-hmm. and it's not getting better, and... You know, I've been sleeping less than five hours a night now for months, and it's really wearing on my health. I'm developing all kinds of infections, and uh, my back pain is acting up, and I have this kind of pain in my chest. Right? Those are significant signs that something is not well, and that 
again, not a healthy one. And unfortunately, I've heard of many personal, you know, stories among grieving people that they've gone and gotten help within the first few months after a death and been told that they had major depression and put on antidepressants, and Look, maybe it was too soon. One of the things that I would right now like to we need to get to our topic, and then we'll go back to looking at complicated grief. Grieving as a meaning-making process. Bob, what does that mean, a meaning-making process? Well, I tend to think of grieving as involving, as at least one of the central processes, the attempt to reaffirm or to rebuild a world of meaning that has been challenged by loss. Mm-hmm. That to the extent that we organize our life stories around the kind of caring commitments, the kind of bonds to significant others that really make up the, the the core theme of our lives, then the loss of those others can really undermine our sense of self, our sense of the world, uh, and the sense of our future. And we often then have to not only seek a kind of meaning or explanation for the death and loss itself, but we often have to seek and find new meaning in our lives as bereaved people. And that's not a, a, an easy process or a fast process, is it? No, it, except when it is. And I emphasize that because there are uh, lots of folks who show remarkable resilience in the face of even profound loss. Mm-hmm. And this tension to take in stride even quite destabilizing losses uh, really gives testimony, I think, to the just the resilience of the human spirit. And, oh, I like that because we have many people on that just go on to do amazing things, don't we, Heidi? Absolutely, but I think this point is so important about making meaning because when you have a death, particularly of somebody young, which a lot of our listeners have, I mean, I remember when my brother died, it completely turned your life upside down. It it puts everything you ever knew about life into question. I thought, how does a 17-year-old die in a car accident in the prime of his life? And how do I make meaning out of that, and how do I go on? And I think Viktor Frankl addressed how he did it. And I, I remember after my brother died reading Man's Search for Meaning, and thinking, okay, I need to find meaning and purpose for my life again and make meaning out of this loss or I'm not going to be able to move forward. Yes, as Frankel said, uh, that he who has a why for living can tolerate nearly any how. That if we have that abiding frame of meaning uh, that serves as a resource for us, then even quite destabilizing events can ultimately be accommodated. How how long do you think it takes with a child, though? I'm I'm, uh, involved with someone right now who had a child. She's in her second year, and she is starting to have, um, we're starting a group of compassionate friends in Palo Alto, and Kim, I'm sure she won't mind, is starting it with me. And Kim right now is in her second year. uh, It's coming on the second year. And she is starting to say some of the things you're talking about. She's starting to verbalize. What am I going to do with my life? Who am I? Uh, This was her, her only child. Uh, I'm not a mommy anymore. Who am I now? And, My life wasn't supposed to look that. like this. Yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, I think that that would be typical, wouldn't it? Because this is something that not only uh, steals from us a kind of cherished past shared with that child, however long that child lived, whether he or she lived only in utero, right, in a way that mm-hmm. was de- she, or he was delivered still into the world, Um child may still have a real uh, sense of personhood, uh, particularly for the mother, or whether that child was around for years. Right? With Kim, her, uh, her uh, little boy was four. Yes. Yeah. And so with that loss, there is the loss not only of the past, but also of a kind of hoped-for future. Right? 
and every day reminds that mother of what eternity will not return, at least in this life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with that, there is an awfully lot of meaning to be sought and one hope uh, also found in the experience. Now, what would you suggest to somebody like our friend Kim uh, going into the second year uh, looking for meaning, searching? How, how would she go about, what, what, how do you conceive of it, restructuring her story or you know, rewriting it? Or how would she think about it? How would you think about it? I, I think the answers can be as individualized as the person who experiences the loss. It's not a, a kind of cookie-cutter process. There's no simple stage-like progression through it. Um, some people find that explicit narrative tools, that is, storytelling tools, where they might reflect upon their own lives and the place of loss in uh, those lives, the place of this particular loss. Uh, now, be, when you say storytelling, do you mean that her telling it to other people? I, I think sometimes the appropriate audience is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is our therapist, counselor, uh, clergy person, uh, and so on. And compassionate but, friends group, which very, we do. Yes. And very often uh, it will be others who have experienced similar losses and who can resonate to those in ways that many other audiences can't. Mm -hmm. You know, Kim and I recently went to a Compassionate Friends meeting, and it was interesting uh, because she'd never been to one before. And um, it was interesting for her to tell her story because there were all different age groups, different um, ways that their children died, and to tell her story to these people in different time frames. And to tell her story, it was interesting how people commented back to her in all sorts of frames, in all sorts of new ideas, in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, I mean, we, we hear our own story in a way echoed in the hollows of lives that are very like our own. And yet, even with this commonality of experience, there is such a diversity mm-hmm. of responses to it. And each of those responses offers another option for how it might be viewed, how it might be done, um, how one might move forward without in any way denying the impact of this loss. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe this is a good time to mention continuing bonds because at the same group that I was at with Kim, a man uh, whose son died uh, about eight years ago, uh, he, husband and wife were there, he had died suddenly of a heart attack as an adult, and he said, uh, I just can't deal with the idea that I have to accept this. This is eight years. I will never accept this. I wish there was some some other way. And I said, well, you know what? There's a new kind of thing called continuing bonds. And my goodness, you should have seen the whole room light up. Yeah, isn't that something? It was, ama- I, it was amazing. There were a, a 30 to 40 people there, and all of a sudden, everyone had a changed look and said, what is this about? Continuing, what does this mean? Well, or when people say, and they say it all the time, you need to um, get over this and move on with your life. And, you know, you don't get over a death. You learn to live with it and incorporate people in a new way into your life that have died yes. through, like, you know, Robert, through the continuing bonds. Through, you know, you incorporate them and internalize them. I mean, I am who I am because I knew my brother. I would be different if he was never in my life. Absolutely. I think that really it is, uh, we speak about it here as a new idea, but it actually is the reintroduction of a very old idea and as the dominant way that people in most world cultures have grieved all of uh, recorded history, and very probably before that. And that is this notion that uh, in experiencing the physical death of the other, we need not experience that person's 
psychological, social, and spiritual death as well. Mm-hmm. All of those things are up to us. Do we find a way of holding on to the relationship, continuing to draw inspiration from it, feeling like there is a place in our heart, in our conversations, in our lives for this person's abiding presence? You know, that's so interesting. When you use those words, holding on, those have become so negative. You know, you can't hold on to this. You know, you've got to let it go. You know? Yeah, and, and yet this comes from a very specific cultural history. Um, I don't know if you want the long version of the story or the short, but let me give it to you short. Okay. I can give details. Um, that whole conception of letting go, of finding a way of seeking closure, of withdrawing energy from the one who had died in order to invest it elsewhere, uh, which went hand in hand with the idea of keeping a stiff upper lip and so on, all of that came directly out of Sigmund Freud's, uh, this is the father of psychoanalysis, his kind of germinal paper. Entitled, Warning and Mel- Melancholia? Right. Written in 1917 mm-hmm. at the height of the Great World War. Right. When all of Europe was flooded with traumatic death on a daily basis, every day for 48 months, twice as many Europeans died as died on September 11, 2001, in the United mm-hmm. States. Imagine if you had September 11 happening twice a day wow. for four years wow. with never a day off. So Freud formulated a theory in which basically people traumatically adapted to the loss by distancing from it. And what we're finding now is that that is only one special and perhaps not optimal form of adaptation to loss, where the dominant pattern, even in European and Anglo-American culture up until that time, uh, the Victorian notion of death, was much more about holding on, about maintaining a kind of fidelity and loyalty to the deceased. Uh, you know, In Victorian homes you would have... Uh, woven kind of patterns that would be framed from the deceased person's hair and pictures of the deceased infant might be the only photos you had of that child, so-called sleeping child photos. Now these things would be regarded as morbid, Mm -hmm. uh, but in fact they are much more coherent with our own cultural history and with the history of most peoples in the world than our 20th century practices, which we are finally beginning to get over. Wow, this is this is an amazing, wonderful thing for people to hear. You know, there are many folks that we talk to that do have little shrines, aren't there, Heidi, in their homes. But I'm sure many people would feel like, mm, you know, that's that's a no-no. And Heidi had mentioned uh, people getting put on antidepressants. Um, another concern I always have is the diagnostic categories for uh, therapy. I think says that grief is complicated after six months or something. Is that right, Bob? Well, it depends on what kind of grief you're talking about. Certainly um, a, a, a sense of ongoing sadness for that person not being in our life, a kind of lump in our throat that may rise when we're reminded of their the, the presence of their absence in the world. Um, these are hardly pathological uh, symptoms or syndromes. But I think that when we find that the person is moving toward or into that second year, third year, fourth year, and it feels like it's still the second, third, or fourth week mm. um, when they find that they're not able to function in important intimate relationships, and uh, they may also have significant expressions of depression where they, they yearn for death themselves or actively plan their own suicide. These are problematic outcomes, and there is good evidence that you know grief therapy and counseling can be quite helpful in these more extreme cases. 
which is about 10 to 15 percent. Mm, good point. 10 to 15 percent of people are in, in this place, but not no more than that. Right, whereas the evidence is strong that 45 or 50 percent are in a very resilient place, and another uh, 10 to 15 percent would be uh, moving through a kind of trajectory or pathway through grief in which they do experience considerable distress, uh, which escalates over maybe a six-month period of time, but then tapers over the next six months to something that is livable. And we know that there are folks out there who have had murder who are still in court, oh, yeah. um, uh, who have missing their conflict, things like they don't know if the person's dead or not. Right. Um, they're missing. They never found a body. Um, I don't know. What are some of the other things we've heard, Heidi? Um, well, they're they're in, they're in the courtroom, like you said, dealing yeah. with the trial, et cetera, and so and and all those other things. I think sometimes put your grief on hold for a little bit. And sometimes oh, yeah. there's some real anger about DW, uh, d- driving accidents where there's alcohol involved, and uh, there's some really tough things going on there. Oh, all of these are important to bear in mind because when we think about complicated grief, the tendency is to pathologize the grieving person to make them the sick one. Mm-hmm. to see it as an individual deficit. Right? When it becomes critically important to say, what are the complicating factors, right? mm-hmm. such as that that protracted pursuit of justice in the case of a homicidal bereavement, um, or these other kind of uh, situations that may lead to a lot of ongoing distress uh, coming from outside the person and the way in which their grief may be disenfranchised, or in other words, really not given uh, validation and support by the community. And this says less about problems with the bereaved person sometimes than it says about problems with the culture in which the bereaved person is needing to survive. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. What about What's your take on antidepressants and uh, sleeping uh, pills and things like that? Well, let me give you my ambivalent reading of that. Um, the, first of all, it's important to distinguish between depression and complicated or prolonged grief reactions. Mm -hmm. The two are often mistaken for one another, and treatment is often targeted toward the depression, that is, toward the feelings of sadness, tearfulness, um, toward the sleep disruption, and so on that may accompany that. But there are important ways in which bereavement-related depression uh, is simply a different animal than uh, complications in the grieving per se. And this is true at the level of people's view of themselves, uh, so that in depression, our classic view of ourselves is as someone who is worthless, we're a failure, we're unlovable. In complicated grief, the focus is on the self as alone. Mm, how very interesting. At, yeah. an, at an emotional level um, for depression, the, the classical kind of response is anhedonia, meaning the inability to feel pleasure in things that once gave pleasure. Mm-hmm. In complicated grief, the core emotion is emotional loneliness that is not taken away by immersion even in a social group. It's not a kind of social loneliness. It's a kind of existential loneliness for this one very special person. Mm-hmm. And Heidi makes a comment to people sometimes, which I like, is, is if that person walked in the room now, how would you feel? Yeah. Because oftentimes people say, you know what, my feelings of dip, of of down, you know, depression, they say, would lift and I would feel fine. Right. So, I mean, they're yearning and searching for the person that died. That's where their pain is coming in. It's about that person. Absolutely. Complicated grief is a form of separation distress. 
that is much more focused than uh, is the case in depression. And that's why when uh, scientific studies have been done uh, administering antidepressant medication to bereaved people, uh, often they find that it, it does help some with the symptoms of depression, but it doesn't touch the core of the complicated grief. Mm-hmm. That is the hyperactive memory about the loved one, um, the emotional distress specifically targeting that person, the sense of anxiety from the separation, the keen sense of loneliness, all persist untouched. I had a, a woman come up to me in Fairport and say that her husband had died two years ago and, and she had a therapist who wanted to go on antidepressants, on antidepressants and she said she didn't want to. And I said, well, then don't. You know, if you feel like, you know, and I asked her how she was feeling and she just said she missed her husband. And, uh, you know, I said, if you don't want to do it, don't. You know, often that's the simplistic response of a medical profession that, in fairness, has never been trained to understand grief. The dominant model, indeed, usually the only model for grief presented in medical school and nursing school curricula is an antique version of stage theory derived from Kubler-Ross's work in the 1960s. And that can provide precious little guidance when we're trying to think about what to do actively with our grief now, aside from simply express it. Right. And how... I know you've written a lot of books and things. How are you getting the word out there, and how would I uh, find somebody if I wanted to find somebody to help me with grief and loss? Do you have any suggestions? Well, one suggestion would be that there there is a group of professionals. Um, many of them participate in an organization called the Association for Death, Education, and Counseling, or ADEC, A-D-E-C. And if one goes online at adec.org, org for organization, then you can find uh, uh, referrals to grief therapists uh, in most communities in North America. That's great. Cause I, that's a good place to start. It's so important to know. And what about your books? What books would you feel like that I would, would, would there be some books or articles that you've done that I could benefit from if I'm a newly bereaved person? I, I think the most accessible uh, is a book called Lessons of Loss. A Guide to Coping, Lessons of Loss, A Guide to Coping. We'll make sure we get that up on our blog. Oh, good. Lessons of Loss, A Guide to Coping. And it can be purchased simply through Amazon, perhaps most conveniently. That's great. Well, I wanted to ask you now, um, making the, the meaning-making process, we talked a little bit about self-dialogue. Here I am, I'm newly bereaved in the past year or two, or maybe very newly bereaved, and you were talking about uh, talking to myself, uh, telling other people my story, maybe what other things can I do? Well, it's important to bear in mind that meaning is something that takes place, meaning-making is something that takes place not only in words, on paper, or between people, uh, but also in in meaningful actions. Uh, You mentioned, for example, the complicating circumstance of losing a loved one in a motor vehicle accident with a drunk driver, impaired driver. And a very meaningful thing uh, is taking social action to prevent this quite unnecessary form of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, as mothers against drunk driving know and do. And I had the, uh, the honor of addressing uh, an annual uh, convention of uh, MAD Canada in that country mm-hmm. last year. Uh, in fact, it inspired me to write a poem. I was so moved by the experience. Um, and so I think that in, in social action, um, in reaching out as folks in the Compassionate Friends routinely do, to others who have suffered similar losses, 
with a kind of understanding and empathy that can only be born from that experience. People constitute uh, new meaning in their lives. They, it is a meaning that comes directly from the hard and dark knowledge of loss as they then are able to reach out and extend that helping hand to other people. Yeah, and I find that um, if people can move a chair, bring a cookie to a chapter meeting, you know, just starting out very small, small, talk to another person, um, it really starts to build on itself. It doesn't have to be big things that you do. Oh, I fully agree. And I know in terms of the losses of my life, uh, when when my mother died a few years ago, I was moved to tears by the the generosity of friends who would bring by a four-course meal for the family, knowing that we just didn't feel like cooking that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be left with nothing more than a word, uh, you know, uh, I hope this is good for you. Um, and that meant as much as an hour of psychotherapy to me. <laughs> well, so I, I think that we, we give in the ways we can give. We give from who we are, and helping starts with who we are and then extends to what we do. But I always say to the people who are very, very newly bereaved, and sometimes we have people maybe who are even three or four days bereaved listen to the show, and I say, now's, you know, now's the time to take care of you and, yes. and do things for yourself. You're the one that needs to have the giving and loving and caring and taking care of right now. And allow people to take care of you and help people to be good grief support. Tell them what you need. Um, I mean, that, that couldn't be said more clearly. That's really... Uh, beautiful to focus on that because sometimes we especially I suppose uh, for mothers who know this loss uh, they may be so defined by their caregiving Mm -hmm. that the receiving of that kind of care and attention from others may be itself a kind of hard skill to learn and yet it's important for both the giver and receiver. And it's a tough tough time to have to learn it but uh, it is the time. I want to ask you a little bit do you see a difference between male and female grief of say the loss of a child? I do, but there it's important, as in differences between different ethnic groups, different ages, and so on, that we're talking about two distributions. If you think about two bell curves like we used to see in our math classes, then these are really overlapping a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to bear in mind that like I grieve in a very feminine fashion. I cry easily. I'm a sentimental kind of guy. Um, and my... Uh, mother-in-law, upon the the death of her husband of 50 years, grieved in a very stoic, Germanic, masculine style. So Mm -hmm. we shouldn't exaggerate the differences, but typically men are more instrumental. They're more practical. They're focused on the doing Mm -hmm. rather than on the being and the feeling that may be more the the specialty, in a way, of of grieving women. Well, Bob, I don't want to forget to have your... uh, Heidi and I love your quote about... um, Closure, <laughs> because we hear so many people say, um, you know, I'm, they're trying to get closure on this. I don't like that. I don't like the fact that I'm supposed to accept the fact that my child died or my spouse died or my uh, my parent died. And what is your, give us your quote. I love well, it. I, I, I guess my quote is basically that, that closure is for bank accounts. It is not for love accounts that... Our love is potentially available in infinite supply. We don't have to withdraw it from an investment in one person in order to give it to another. And indeed, to the very extent that we do that, we tend to amputate our ability to reach out to anyone when we find that we need to forcibly shut down love in relation to someone who richly deserves it. Right. and Oh, that's so wonderful. And that's one of the issues, too. 
you do need to grieve your losses because if you don't, I mean, I'm, I will give a personal experience. My brother had um, a child uh, die at birth, and when my son was killed, he really wasn't able to reach out because he really hadn't grieved that himself. Yes. So, and it was years and years before. So, oh, don't shut down. You know, it, it takes a lot of courage to meet it, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. I, I, I think courage must be the, the watchword for this process. It, it requires a lot of bravery to acknowledge the, the depth of our decimation, not just to wear the false face of uh, strength, um, as a crucial a skill as that may sometimes be, but to at least find some places where we can go backstage and take off that mask and find others who can be witnesses to the stirrings of our soul in those moments of sometimes despair and hope. And, um, and ironically as well, to find people who can be an audience for our positive emotions mm-hmm. of pride, mm-hmm. joy, um, and just a, an ability to experience happiness again. I like Sometimes that. Brief, we feel like we can't even do that. that Absolutely. That's People feel guilty. We yes. were, when we were giving the talk, a lot of the kids were saying, I feel guilty if I have a, a good moment or I'm doing something positive. So I like finding an audience. And one of the things we talk about, and we'll say that to our audience, is if you do feel guilty, one of the things you can do is compartmentalize by maybe having a candle and a time when you grieve. If you're going to, if you're having some fun time, know that later on you'll have that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the, I think, helpful models that has been formulated in recent years is something called a dual process model of grieving by uh, some of my Dutch colleagues, Maggie Strobe and Hank Schutt. Mm-hmm. And what they say is that in, in every grief, we need time for a loss orientation when we really focus on what is missing, when we focus on giving voice to that pain, practicing those kind of healing rituals that you describe whether individually or jointly, like a joint candle lighting ceremony uh, for a common loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we also recognize that that loss orientation is only a sometimes thing and that there is also a restoration orientation where we re-engage the world, we may invent new roles and identities for ourselves, we try things on, um, and at those times we necessarily distract ourselves from our grief just as in our grief, we necessarily distract ourselves from the call of the world. And that shifting back and forth between these two things is part of the process of grieving. It's not just moving from one to the other in a straight line. Oh, that's a that's a very interesting thought. You know, uh, at Christmas time, the Compassionate Friends, and I know uh, some other groups do too, they have a candle lighting the second uh, Sunday in December. So because Christmas and the holidays for people is such a big thing, here is this whole group thing um, on the second Sunday all around the world. They do the candle lighting. So um, showing how you can do that, but then go back and enjoy the holiday too. Mm-hmm. That back and forth is great. I remember after 9-11 they had something like that where everyone was supposed to go outside at a certain time with a candle and it was so powerful because you were outside and you saw all these people that you didn't know but you were all united together to se- to celebrate the lives of those that died on 9-11. Very powerful. I had a similar experience in London two years ago when they had the London Underground or subway bombings as a terrorist incident that took the lives of several people and of course, there was a memorial at King's Cross, which is the subway that this happened closest to. But in addition, they had a two-minute um, 
moment of silence mm. in which all Londoners in the middle of a work day stepped out into the streets. All of the traffic in this great, uh, you know, world capital just stopped right dead in the streets. And for two minutes, hundreds of thousands of people who did not know one another stood in reverent silence, some in deep private contemplation, others in a kind of almost tearful eye-to-eye contact with folks they did not know uh, before a bell chimed and we all then returned to our work days. Um, and I think in this we do have such a vivid reminder of our collective vulnerability to loss and the necessity of reaching out to others in it. That's wonderful. Very powerful. Very powerful. Well, it's time to close our show now. Before we do, I want to ask you, is there anything that you think we've missed that you want to comment on? And I know you're a poet and you've written a book of poetry. And we, uh, that is that, um, can people get that on Amazon? Yes, it's a book called Rainbow in the Stone. And I would be willing to close with a brief poem uh, if you're interested in that. I would love it. Um, it's a poem in some ways that I'd like to dedicate to the two of you guys and to this important show. Um, as you kind of reach out from your own losses to assist those who are dealing with theirs. and It's a poem I entitle, Stone Tears, and it goes like this. You steer toward the harbor of our talk as a ship pushes through fog, the hope of safe passage a beacon, the cargo heavy in your hold. Your eyes carry your grief like stone tears, their swell too sudden to restrain, too weighty to let fall. To release them would cost you all that remains of connection. Like ballast, the dead weight of your loss balances, restrains, holds you to measured meter. With it, you move slow as the tide, ebbing and flowing with your own rhythms. I watch you approach as I stand on shores lapped by these same waves. Like you, I found this uncharted coast in the black vessel of mourning, my only service now to stand and wait. Ah, this is beautiful. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.